Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad podcast. I'm Michelle, and today I'm speaking with Lachelle Tinder, who is the Treasurer of Families in Global Transition and Global Mobility Manager for H&M in the U.S. Welcome, Lachelle. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be with you. Can you tell us about your background and your work with FIGT? Sure. I fell into relocation and experienced my first one in 1986 when we moved domestically. About five years later, I was pregnant with our second child and we relocated internationally. And then we lived abroad for 11 years. We moved every two to three and a half years between 1992 and 2003. I often joke that my claim to fame is having three kids in three different continents. What might help you get a little bit better context on this period of time is we left the US pre-internet and we returned post 9-11. As you can imagine, it was a very different world by the time that we repatriated than the one in which we left. And we as a family, we were changed by our experiences. With all the changes, repatriation was particularly difficult for us and we were just expected to fall back into our life, but it no longer existed. And the others who we had been with and had you know, lived amongst, they had moved on without us. While we had had other experiences, they continued in their path. So mm-hmm. returning home and managing that was very difficult. So in short, we had all these great experiences, but no one to share them with and not even sure what to do with them when we returned. It was this that led me in my work to REA. REA is a spouse partner career transition assistance company. And while I worked there, I attended my first FIGT conference in Houston in 2004. That conference changed my perspective. I walked into a room of strangers who immediately got me and I found community and strength among other moms of TCKs. It helped my focus and looking at it from what my energy could be in the way of helping my struggling TCKs. Because my children were then at that point, middle school and high school and the baby was 19 months. So at the conference, I had purchased Third Culture Kids by Ruth Van Rankin and David Pollack, and I brought it back to them. After reading it, my two older children said, Mom, this is our Bible. I was sold, hook, line, and sinker on FIGT. I attended several conferences actually while working at REA. And when I changed my work and progressed towards the career as a global mobility manager for a corporation, I didn't have the opportunity to attend conferences for several years, but I followed the news. I stayed in touch with people. And then last year, when they were doing the call for board members, I was asked to submit my application as a longstanding member of the community and professional in the mobility space. I became the treasurer in October, and I have been working to help shape the way in which we look at what we're doing, how we change the environment, and potentially some other greater challenges in terms of looking at travel, larger crowds, and finding a way within our virtual work world. What issues do you see that are particular to U.S. citizens when they move overseas? Well, there's a lot of those. I think that this can vary dramatically depending on what the demographics are. If you look at global mobility in the workforce, you have several generations within that global workforce. So we have to look at that, but there are some universal challenges such as ensuring financial stability for the future with a good retirement account, whether it's a pension or a 401k, and then managing our ever-changing landscape of tax and immigration compliance that often lacks a very clear and defined objectives and directives in order to understand what's needed. So these all 
impact us and then also understanding what's expected to be able to live and work in, in those local laws. So I think that these combine a lot of the main challenges. And then added to that is the growing sentiment of nationalism. I mean, if we look at where we are as a nation right now, part of that is the protectionism. So that's sweeping the global arena. And that welcome sign that may have been hung out for us or what we were expecting has been pulled up before we can even expatriate to the lands that we're headed to. So the expat is arriving with all of the appropriate approvals to work and live in the country, but maybe not feeling as welcomed as before or as expected. I think residing in the environment where there is this undercurrent of hostility obviously can make it feel very unpleasant and make us feel unsafe. So a predominant thing that we're looking at right now is duty of care. And that duty of care is where we have to focus on the well-being of expats. It's a universal concern. It doesn't matter the demographics on this one. Everybody is involved in this and how we are looking at that support system. For those that are coming from companies where there's a corporate sponsor, it's less of an issue because you have maybe corporate security or you have somebody like myself where you have a global mobility professional, but a lot of people are trying to head out and do this on their own. So we see varying levels of responses depending on the expat and what are the challenges that they're going to encounter. Then we also have a number of things that are outside of any control, like global warming, severe weather, political unrest, a pandemic. What is going on out there and how do we need to look at duty of care? So if the expat doesn't have clear or manageable protocols in place, it heightens that threat or that unsettledness in the situation. So there are issues that create noise in an assignment and can turn it potentially a successful assignment to be a failed one and maybe have an early repatriation or split the family. Some of these things we can plan for and some we can't. We know that not all expats are built the same. One of the critical pieces in evaluating an expat or determining if you're going to be a good candidate is resilience. Resilience is a vital quality to possess before taking on any expat experience, whether you're choosing to go out on your own or whether a company is selecting you. So those who lack resilience, I think will fare more poorly when it comes to these issues than they would if they had a strong, resilient base. That noise that can come in the form of family and marital challenges related to settling in, to caring for aging parents at a distance, managing rental property for the first time, adjusting to a different culture, finding entry into the social base in the host country, all of this is magnified when you don't have resilience. Mm -hmm. I think US citizens in particular are maybe a little bit more challenged on some of this if they don't have it because they're not as used to managing some of the critical challenges that maybe in other countries they have to, and we might have a lacking of flexibility. We expect everything to work the way that it should work. We can make a judgment about whether something is inferior. We may not have the same desire to address and get closer to locals. So that's how we can come off sometimes as that ugly American. So I think that this is something to protect against. So think about how are we resilient? How are we flexible? So that we don't unintentionally create a situation where it's not working because we're being viewed as, oh, in America it is this, that, or the other. And then we're viewed as not adapting. I think our cultural agility is something that we need to work at. 
as Americans. And I think that this is really maybe an underlying base to help us in dealing with those issues. You mentioned that often U.S. nationals have issues with pensions. Can you explain more about this? So absolutely. I mean, I think the the biggest thing with pensions is making sure that we are looking at our long-term funding needs. And it's going to vary whether you're younger or older. So the critical challenge around pensions and retirement accounts lies in the IRS regulations. Companies have moved away from those lavish home payroll packages from the 80s and 90s. And often expats are sent out on a local contract where the salaries are subject to the local taxes. And that can include social insurance with government-funded pensions. We don't operate that way. So if you're planning to retire in that country, great, no challenges. But the likelihood is slim that you're going to stay in that country. A lot of people who are moving around in that sort of global nomad position are really thinking more about where do I want to be? So if you're going to retire back into America, can you maintain a certificate of coverage to stay in the U.S. social system so you don't lose your social security? I think that's going to be tricky, especially if you're on a host payroll. And maybe there's not a totalization agreement that is in place to allow you to do that. So your social insurance, contribution to a 401k or a pension funding, all of these are a challenge. And especially if you don't have an employer that's helping you. There are some companies that specialize in consulting about pension funding and how to take advantage of international pension plans. What's important is to understand that the funding limitations and tax reporting requirements are going to be different depending on offshore investment portfolios within these international pension plans, because that is very typical. So if your IPP has offshore investments, be wary of the the, the taxing implications on that. You mentioned totalization agreements. Can you expand on those? Yeah, we have a variety of agreements that are cross-border between nations. There's two different types of agreements. One is a double tax treaty and one is a totalization agreement. And maybe I'll just give you an understanding of both of those because it can be valuable for people to understand the two concepts. Totalization agreements refer to where we have an opportunity to leave a home payment into our social insurance while receiving payment in host country. And we are no longer held accountable to the host social insurance by making that home payment. And you file a document that's called a certificate of coverage or an A1, depending on the country. There may be other terminologies depending on countries, but it's basically a certificate of coverage to say you do have social insurance and you have to have that totalization agreement between the two countries that usually allows up to five years. Then a double tax treaty, this is where a lot of people I think get confused and they think that they're not gonna be tax liable in a country provided that they stay under 183 days because that's the sort of magic number that we all hear about. The double tax treaty refers to when you go between two countries that you should only be held accountable to tax in one taxing jurisdiction where your work is being performed provided that you meet all the conditions. And if you are not a tax resident, then you are no longer held accountable to tax in that host country. Typically those fall at 183 days, but there's a number of rules around those double tax treaties that can invalidate that. So people shouldn't just assume that if there is a treaty between their home country and where they're gonna go work, that they're tax-free until 183 days. Make sure you pay attention to the regulations and if you need to seek 
counsel from an international tax expert. Could you expand on the particular elements of duty of care? Yeah, duty of care is a topic near and dear to my heart. When we look at duty of care, and as a global mobility professional for H&M, it is very critical for me to think not only of what's happening in the U.S., but what's happening more broadly. So we aim at a comprehensive view of making sure that the well-being of foreign nationals are protected, including health, safety, and security. The insurance is a critical area that involves the day-to-day matters and it can be quite significant, as you can imagine, if it's not handled well, because you don't know what is going to come for your expats and their family members. So Americans are accustomed to a very private level insurance where they can go to the doctors that they want and being able to have full coverage. Moving globally may present various challenges based on the underwriting terms of global coverage policies, if one exists. So when transferring to a host social insurance, if that's the protocol there, Identifying that there is a potential for a stopgap insurance while waiting to be enrolled in that social insurance is going to be important. Or exploring new coverages compared to the existing policy may unearth inequities that can be very costly, especially if there's a chronic issue. So comparing the coverages of long-term disability also becomes something that can be a real challenge in making sure that that benefit is available and that you can pay it out appropriately in the country that they're residing in. I have seen expats move to new locations where the non-married partner or non-accompanying family members are uninsurable. And what I mean by that is maybe in your home country, you're allowed to have your cohabiting partner on your insurance, but when they move abroad, they're no longer, or you can have children remaining in school in university, and they're not going to be covered because they're not on assignment with you. So these are part of duty of care and insurance. If an American goes abroad without support of the company's safety and security, These can be huge challenges. And I think insurance is probably the predominant one that most people worry about. What are the issues you've seen arising from the COVID-19 pandemic that are impacting American expats? I participate in a number of webinars and calls regularly with mobility professionals, and we are astounded at how much work has changed for us. We are faced with new challenges daily that require strategic partnership with our corporate tax providers, to ensure that the expats returning home, that they do not have any issues from a corporate tax risk perspective in the event that they have been working remotely or with our immigration providers because they may have had to go and reside in another country temporarily because they got stuck there. So do we have any challenges around moving around to lower risk countries? Finding what are those options to work around for the immigration and tax in the remote work situations. Those are, I think, some critical areas that we've been facing. Families are often making tough decisions around staying in the contracted work location to comply with corporate tax mandates while connecting virtually with friends and family who are also in a lockdown situation. So those of us who are working and scheduled kind of looking at the the relocation of new locations, repatriations, all of that is also kind of looking at what's the safety protocol around that. How do we manage it safely? We don't want to bring anybody in if they're going to get stuck in transit somewhere. Or we don't send somebody out if we don't know for sure that we can get them there and have them stuck in quarantine for a month at a time. So we are looking at all kinds of things like that. The other side is the mental impact. Nobody can say a proper goodbye. So when we're looking at repatriations, it's not the ideal case by any means. And it can become the worst case scenarios for family members 
family members, they may have somebody that's back home that's very ill or dying and the expat's unable to travel to be with them. These are some very challenging situations. It's not unique to the US expats by any means, but perhaps on a larger scale due to the severity of impact that we are suffering here in the US. The way in which we have moved around the world has changed the foreseeable future, and this will impact all of our expat decisions on whether or not to take an expat assignment, moving abroad, and what that looks like for them as a family, not only in their nucleus family, but that extended family decision. I think as mobility professionals, or as a professional, my greatest concern is, how do we make sure our families and our employees are able to move around safely? And have we given them the opportunity to make sure that they can secure the immigration clearance? Are they feeling that they have a place where they can land? And are they comfortable? And these are some of the bigger challenges that we're facing during COVID. ACA's membership includes many dual national couples. What are the particular issues affecting them? (laughs) I used to refer to our home as the United Nation while living abroad. We represented four countries of birth and three nationalities. So I speak from a point of experience in understanding those dual national couples and building on that with multinational families because of where your children may be born. It's not unusual these days to see mixed cultured families and the challenges may differ based on the underlying values, practices and norms of the nationalities. And then you combine that with the host country. So there's a lot to put into the mix there. For example, if the primary worker is transferring and it's maybe a female that's coming and they're transferring to a male-dominated society and the social norms will automatically then put at odds what is the dynamic there now imagine in that situation that the husband is also from a male-dominated society but it's the spouse that the female is the worker and maybe he's grown up with more open mindset and has embraced feminism but he may be looked at kind of oddly if he's coming from a male-dominated society. So then is it creating barriers for him in integrating in the host country? So there's all kinds of things that can create a challenge in this. If you have added any kind of non-traditional family mix, it creates a whole new level of challenge. In some countries where same-sex marriage may not be well accepted, even if the family can legally reside there. Taking care to understand the values, I think, is very important. Practices and norms of what is that intended culture are important. If you are not sure about that, I think that's something where you would want to have the dialogue. Companies should be looking at it and assessing it. Because if we have the direct perspective of what is that mixed culture, that's going to help us greatly. Because it can come in direct conflict with the values of the country. I would highly recommend reevaluating if it is the right move and what coping strategies will be in place to manage these issues to make sure if they do arise that you're ready for it. For couples where one individual may have to give up their job for a move, how can this issue be handled? Shifts have occurred in immigration law that allow spouses to obtain work permits more easily in a greater number in a lot of countries. However, even with this happening, I think finding meaningful employment may not necessarily be easy, especially now that we are in a downturn in the global economy caused by COVID-19. Having open discussions within the family unit, the global mobility team and service providers is gonna help in managing those expectations and setting a course for the spouse. I think if you move with a self-initiated situation without a company to support you, it's gonna be important to take stock in the financial impact for any loss of income, and long-term investments is gonna be critical. If you have the support of the company, then you may have some offsetting benefits there. 
I think it's just not a matter of whether it's the income of living abroad, but also the lack of the equity and the pension and retirement funding that we need to look at, I think, for spouses. And they need to be considering as well, because if you're going out for one or two years, it's maybe one thing. If you're going out for a longer time, think of that long-term impact on pension and retirement. Identifying opportunities, I think, for study or potential for volunteerism is going to be important to integrate to the host community. And in that country, that's going to really be helpful. I did a lot of that myself when we lived abroad for 11 years. It is important to really understand the tax and immigration compliance before assuming that the accompanying spouse and partner can work remotely as an income derived may be taxable in that host country and the work permits may be required. What sort of issues do you see facing U.S. families who move abroad? Issues are going to really depend on a lot of makeup of the family units. So what are the ages of the children? Do they have dependent adults with disabilities that they might be taking care of? Is it a sole parent head of a household? So you have to look at the dynamics and that's going to change what your situation is. Moving abroad with a traditional family unit, mom, dad, children, presents limited challenges in most countries. If there's a degree of flexibility to accept different schooling practices, styles of home, living standards, and all of those normal things. So I think that if you include any kind of other challenges, like a child with disabilities or an aging adult, it automatically shifts where you need to have available services, what is the care for these individuals. If the children are nearing the college age, helping to find schools that offer AP or IB programs is going to be super important. So there's a lot of different things, and especially if they're in those last years of school, they may want to stay at home. So what does that look like? Repatriating seems like a particular challenge. And I think that this is where I'm maybe more focused because mine was so challenging. So I think that this is also something that we have to really think about is what is the support of repatriating? It's obviously, like I mentioned at the beginning, what really led me to FIGT. How can American families prepare for a move overseas? What's the best way to make the change of environment easier for families, in particular for the kids? The golden question, network, network, network. I think FIGT is a great place to start. There are tons of resources and people who are understanding the challenges of moving abroad. Seek out the information of people who have walked before you and have been through some of the same challenges that lie in the path of what you're going to be doing. Research the intended new home and culture. Identify where there are differences and think about how to manage those. Build resilience. Resilience is so, so important and there are ways in which we can build that. And then expect to go through the highs and lows of culture shock. Recognizing that you are not alone in both the excitement of the new opportunity and the fear of the unknown is important. We have to normalize our feelings. Prepare your friends and families for the change. Help say goodbye in ways that allow you and your children to go on and build lifelong connections without feeling untethered with the friends and family that you've left behind. Learn the local language. I think this is probably one of the most important things because we can become very disconnected. And if you don't learn that local language, it's going to be an impairment to your settling in. One of the things that I did was I disconnected from all my friends and my family for a brief period of time. I said, I need to learn the local language. I did not want to be focusing in my native language. So disconnect for a period of time in your native language, and it's going to help you immerse yourself into that host language. Get involved, explore, and be open to new experiences. 
Prepare well for any medical challenges, such as allergies, chronic health issues, and regular checkups, because you don't want to be caught unawares in a country that you're not familiar with. So these are just a few things. I'm sure each situation, people might think of other things, but hopefully it gives at least some ideas. At ACA, we hear about corporations no longer sending Americans overseas or moving Americans off expat packages to local packages. Can you speak about what is happening with companies and their deployment of U.S. citizens for jobs overseas? Packages are really being driven a lot by money, and so several companies have gone to permanent transfers only, while others use local packages for development or self-initiated moves. A local package will include compliance-related benefits, such as tax and immigration. The level of services varies based on company practices. In addition to immigration attacks, the support may include a range of soft services or cash benefits to help with the transition. Service providers may get directly involved to move personal effects, find schools and or housing, manage lump sum distributions, or support settling in services. Foreign local hires or that local assignment is really a participation in the host retirement plan, the host medical plans. These get a little bit more challenging because you're following all those local practices. We see these working very, very successfully within Europe. It's a little more challenging coming into the US or out of the US because it's not natural for us. So for US citizens, it can be favorable if they have really good social programs or employment laws and that are very generous, such as the parental leaves, but your challenge then comes in your pension that we talked about. I think the biggest disparity also is that host compensation model for the US citizens, where they experience a pay inequity from our global counterparts. The main thing is that I encourage people that they should consider a job abroad when they look at the various aspects without the lens of comparing exact compensation or trying to achieve a dollar for dollar comparison. A local contract will be likely failing in achieving this, but if you look at it more in intrinsic benefits that are going to come from it, then you're able to look at a lot of different things, such as the opportunity for quicker growth within your company, enhanced resilience for you and your family members, cultural agility by being able to move around and how that's going to impact you in working cross-functionally whenever you work in multicultural teams. Broadening your perspective as a global view of situations, having the experience of traveling and adventure or expanding one's network. There's so many different things that we can look at that are those intrinsic things that help us to come to a decision of taking a local move and offsetting some of the potential financial loss. We tend to think of Americans going overseas for jobs, but there are other reasons U.S. citizens move overseas. Can you expand on this? Traditional paths focus typically on missionaries, studies, volunteerism, or retirement. All of these are happening today with a larger percentage of Americans moving abroad to retire due to financial benefit and improved quality of life. I think more recently, companies have begun sponsoring remote work programs too. So this is expanding that younger generation that might have been more tending towards the studies or volunteerism. Well, I don't have any specific information on how these remote programs are working from a compliance perspective for their clients. The concept allows them to move overseas with remote jobs. And I think that this is very attractive to be able to move from country to country where your logistics are handled by somebody else. As the world expands, it also gets a lot smaller. This invites people to do cross-border moves for a variety of reasons. 
Additionally, as we talked about earlier, we see a growing number of cross-national marriages, which will impact where one lives and raises a family. Quality of life, safety and security, political views, health, all of these may be prompting mobility in ways that we cannot begin to determine what it's going to look like in five or 10 years from now. But situations like COVID-19 may pull the reins back a little bit and make us a little bit more slower to move. I'm not sure how it's going to happen or, or what's going to transpire, but it may not halt it in any direction and may just shift it a little bit. We also hear about the digital nomad. What are the challenges facing these individuals? As I just mentioned, there's a lot of companies that are out there doing the remote worker and the idea is extremely attractive. Okay, I go and I work remote and then somebody else handles all the logistics, right? And I can work remote because my job allows it, right? So the challenge becomes, it's not that simple. It sort of goes back to that double tax treaty that I mentioned a little bit ago too. Being able to work remotely doesn't mean you can work remotely. So ability and, and, and entitlement to do so are two different things because we need to be compliant according to the local laws of where we're living. Even if you can have a stay of 90 days or 183 days, it doesn't mean you're going to be compliant in working there without the appropriate immigration or paying those taxes. Governments are becoming very savvy in terms of how they are identifying the digital nomad and imposing fines and penalties. They're using IP addresses, they're using flight records, they're using immigration entry documents, there's all kinds of things. The way in which this is done is, is a challenge and these can be carried out after the fact so that you can arrive home and find that you owe the taxing authorities or unexpectedly you might be trying to leave the country and find that you owe taxes and you're being detained at the point of departure. The biggest challenge is the assumption made without fact checking to see what are the local laws and practices and how can digital nomad work compliantly in the country. Are you seeing geographic trends in relocation of US citizens? Yeah, the predominant drivers around this today of the global nomad are the quality of life and experiences while working for organizations that have an underlying mission that supports their value system. I think that that's the most critical piece. So this can be directly impacting geographic trends, such as if they are focusing on the environment, they may choose to work on protecting our planet in whether it's oceanography, that might lead them into working in the Navy, or they may become a diver and studying currents or following El Nino. They may choose to work in water mining in Africa or alternative energies where they may be led out to open waters or high wind pattern areas. So for the quality of life, we see that it's more around the trends of retiring overseas for individuals that can stretch their retirement dollars and be able to have a much more comfortable way of life. There is a cute little town in Mexico and it has a growing population of US retirees. It's called San Miguel de Agendas. It offers a quaint, safe, very urban kind of area with a wonderful climate. So you're, you're seeing these kinds of developments pop up and, and this gives you an idea of maybe what are some of the drivers that are changing the geographic location of citizens and how we're choosing to go overseas, whether it's quality of life or for our value system, but it's certainly being driven by more than shifts in loyalty to a company that I think it's much more that self-initiated move that's more prevalent today. You touched on repatriation earlier. Can you talk a little about how an individual, family, or couple can prepare to relocate back to the U.S.? 
That is probably my favorite question. And the reason is, is I'm very passionate about repatriation. To achieve a successful repatriation, which I think is also a deep indicator of the success of the assignment, it's really, really, really important to prepare for the repatriation prior to leaving. Within mobility, the rule of thumb has often been to prepare six months in advance before repatriation. However, we see the most success when the dialogue starts before departing and looking at the succession planning, reintegration, staying connected with people back home, discussions with the spouse about real and perceived shifts or that loss of career trajectory, and then the cultural assimilation back into the US. When we move abroad, we leave as one type of an individual. We leave with our set of perceptions and our experiences. But by the time that we return, that is completely different because of our time outside the US. And we've opened our minds to new ways of thinking, of doing things, of interacting with the world at large. We leave American citizens and we come back as global citizens. This shift can be unsettling to others and to ourselves. Preparing before departure to understand and to network with others who have gone there really will help. Building relationships in the U.S. with others who have lived abroad will greatly help in returning home because you have a friend waiting for you who understands the path you are about to take and what it is like to return. This is not to say that it's going to be the same for everyone because no two experiences are alike. However, there is a commonality among our experiences and the longing that we have of what we have experienced and what we bring back to us whenever we're repatriating. There is that feeling of less than, that it can be really overwhelming. After living overseas where most of us take advantage of the opportunity, then we return home to take up life as it was before, it can be underwhelming. The key is to understand the growth and how to use that to exact the change of one's life in the way that we want to, to progress forward in a different way. And in that way, we live more fully. Thanks, Lachelle, for taking the time to chat today. The American Citizens Abroad podcast is a monthly podcast that is published the second Tuesday of each month. It is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. You can find us on Twitter at ACA underscore podcast, on Facebook at American Citizens Abroad podcast, or you can email us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us. 